Good morning. I got a little worried when I saw Jonna Maria on this side because it's got to be balanced out because we've got Dan Gillette over there, but then Bill shows up, so it's, it's balanced with all the, all the pastors in the audience. That's all, just so you know, as a, as a preacher, it's always intimidating when other preachers are here um, because you might be doing a passage they've studied very significantly, and then you land in a different spot. So um, no judgment. <laughs> all right, we're going to be today, most people think though Sunday after Advent, or Sunday after Thanksgiving begins Advent, but Thanksgiving came very early in the year this year, and so this is actually the, the kind of a in-between Sunday. Next week is the first Sunday of Advent, and Lynn and I, with our entire family in a very small place, will be down in Florida, but you next week will be celebrating together the Sacrament of Communion. Uh, Pastor, Doug, are you preaching in here? Josh. Uh, Pastor Josh, who the the one who's going to be planting a church. He'll be in here. Um, uh, but I want to I try to tie in today. So this is one of those, I call them one-offs, but just a, it's just a sermon. It's not part of a series. Uh, but I want to tie together Thanksgiving and communion. And I want to remind you of some of the things we learned in the, when we were in the series on Hebrews. And we're going to go to the gospel according to Mark. So I'm, that's the only preliminary stuff I'm going to give you, then we're just going to go for it. So I'm going to pray, and we'll get started in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this weekend. I know that many, many gathered as family, and others were feeling like they wanted to be connected and were alone. Uh, Lord, I know you know all of those feelings. You've had a dear, dear, a dear, dear friend betray you. Um, you've watched your people walk away when you want to be with them, um, and you have times where you've celebrated your people being faithful and in communion with you. Lord, we ask simply this. Speak to us today. We want to hear what you have to say. We want to receive what you have to give, and we want to see what you have to show. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through the power of your Spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So back to Hebrews. Um, it's a very familiar passage. It's one that many people uh, memorize in the, in the book of Hebrews. Um, and it starts like this in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hardship or opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, I want to tell you just a couple of things about that. I know I think it was Pastor Doug that preached that this summer, um, that passage, but that, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, some people think that that means all of us. Others know that it comes right after the kind of chapter of the heroes of the faith um, that, we, that we see in chapter 11. <clears throat> so it's the saints that have gone before us. And sometimes we think, oh, so it's saying we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, they're watching us. Maybe. But it's, it's, to, it's to look back, and if you remember in Habakkuk, it said, the righteous will live by faith. And if you parse that sentence out, it's actually the... the the faithfulness of God is that which his people will live by. 
So it's the same thing here. We have a great cloud of witnesses that we can see God's interaction with them throughout history. We can see how he's been faithful, how he's come through, even in difficult times, especially in difficult times. We see how God has worked and moved in them according to his good purpose. And so we should consider them because we have this long history of all that they've been through, all the ways that God has interacted with them, all the ways that God has called them to be a people, and all the ways that God has credited, credited their actions as righteousness to them. It's a beautiful, beautiful sentence. Since, since we are surrounded by, by that great history of God interacting with his people, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I just want to give you a quick little word picture of entangled. Um, back in the day, I'm shaped like a pear now, so you can tell I don't do a lot of running now. Uh, but back in the day when I was growing up, my mom and I would get up in the morning. We lived kitty corner from the, from the high school track in East Grand Rapids. And so we would, we would, we would get up, get up in the morning. We would go over, we would kind of run to the track and then do our, our mile or mile and a half. And then we would run back to our house. I mean, it, it's a total of less than two miles. But you may remember this, some of you, that if you were ever a paper boy or a paper girl, they used to put the papers on the corner for the paper boy to come by and stick them in their satchel. And there were these big wire bands that went around them, at least when I was a kid, when I was a paper boy. And you had to bring a tool to kind of grab that wire band and pop it. Or, if you're good, if it's not a Sunday paper because they're so thick, but you could, you could pull three or four papers out of the middle of the stack and then all of them would slide out and that metal band is just there. Well, you're supposed as a paper boy, you're supposed to take that big metal band and put it in, in, on your bike or in your bag and not leave it there. Well, the paper boy that, that was at uh, Bretton Road and uh, Lake Drive in East Grand Rapids tended to leave them there. So we were waiting for the light to change. We ran across the road and I got caught in that band. It got under one foot and then the other foot caught it. And I don't know if you've ever seen a person running to get something wrapped around their legs. It's hilarious. But it is entangling. And I mean, it cut into my skin a little bit, but I, did, I just want, if I could give you any picture of what sin does to us, um, not necessarily the, the sins that kind of come upon us and, and we didn't see them coming, but that's entangled. But, but most of the sins in our lives, most of the sin in our lives, we know it's there. We know it's coming. We can prepare in advance to not get tangled up in it. So to keep going, just a couple more little word pictures before we get to the thing that we're going to focus on from this passage. Um, the, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Who marked it out? The first one to run this race and to do it well is Jesus. And if we, and we know that because he's the author and perfecter, the other way of looking at that or reading that, that, that word is the author and initiator of our faith. He's the first one to run this race, and he did it perfectly. And if he's still running the race, if he's with us, he's not, it's a strange picture, because I know we always want to say that Jesus is with us, he's right next to us, and, um, but if we're following Jesus, we don't necessarily see his face, we see the back of his head. And we're supposed to kind of map out where he's headed, and we're supposed to follow along. But the race that we are to run, the life that we are to live, has been marked out for us. It's not that we get to decide so much as we get to decide one thing, to be faithful to the faithfulness of God and to follow Christ's example. And Paul would go so far as to say, if you can't follow the example of Christ, follow the example of Paul who's following the example of Christ. That was some of the reading that we just did 
over the weekend. And then finally, I mean, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. That's kind of that idea that we're, we're, we're following after him, the author and initiator of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So just so you know, and I'm sure you do, but a cross, being killed on a cross is a scorn, is a shame. So there's wordplay right here that you may not, we, we may not see right away, but it's that he endured the cross and he shamed the shame. Now, it could be he scorned the scorn, or it could be he scorned the shame. But there's a wordplay right there that Jesus took the shameful thing, and because of the joy set before him, he, it was as if it was nothing to him. It was, he, what the shame, whatever. He endured it, and he took it on, and the thought was that because he died a shameful death, He's done. His ministry is invalidated. He's been canceled in the heavenlies. But we all know what happened. We remember that he came back from the dead. We remember that he said, I'm doing this for you. And we're going to talk in a moment about him telling his disciples just what's going to happen. And it's how he did it that kind of boggles my mind. So set Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and initiator of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, shaming its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hardship from sinful men so that you, we, do not grow weary and lose heart. Now, over to Mark chapter 14. I've got some cool stuff that just, it's just fun to know. This is the eating of the Passover meal. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters, the teacher asked, where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. Now, <clears throat> I think it's remarkable that Mark includes this. There's some weird stuff in here, or some strange things. Men, if they were married, or if they had daughters, did not carry water. So it would be an unusual thing. Find a man carrying water, follow him, the house he enters, Ask the master, you know, my working teacher and his disciples have Passover. And then, by the way, the upper room is like those, those houses are a box. And then on top of that, it's another box. So it's a box on a box where they're having the Passover meal. But it's interesting to me that, that the, way, the way Mark includes this, because it is a very unusual thing for someone to say, where, where, where would you like to celebrate the Passover? Well, here's how you're going to find out. Walk through the city. You'll see a guy carrying some water. Stalk him. Right? Follow him. And then who, with the house he goes into, find the master of that house, ask him the questions. It'll be all set. And it's, you know, it's, so Jesus is telling his disciples as he's going to Passover, all these things are predetermined. I already know what's going to happen. So they don't know that then. They probably go, wow, it's just water. was just like he said. There's a guy carrying water in a house. And, but Afterwards, they can look back and remember that Jesus, this didn't come upon Jesus. Jesus 
walked toward the cup of suffering that he's going to have to drink on our behalf. His disciples left. They went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely not I. It's not me, is it? It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, it's my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. They all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So I'm going to concentrate on a couple of things here that two of them we know for sure. One of them, it's one of three. I'll explain that in a moment. We just always, in our words of institution, we always think, yep, Jesus, after he took the bread and after blessing God, thanking God, he broke it and he handed it out. Well, let me tell you what he prayed, because I want you to see that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he shamed its shame. For the, what's the joy? What's the joy set before him? Because how could anyone face what Jesus knows is going to come? He's already articulated that one of his best friends is going gonna, is gonna to betray him. And still, and he is going to be the Passover lamb, and still he has a way of being grateful and thankful in the midst of it. He prays when he takes the bread and he breaks it. or it's, He took the bread and he, and he gave thanks to God, and then he broke it and handed it out. We know because it's Passover, we know what he prayed because they've been praying the same thing since, since Passover began. Baruch, I'm not great at Hebrew. Baruch atah Eloheinu, Baruch atah Eloheinu, Melech ha'alam hamatsi leham minharetz. Bless you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And with the wine, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech ha'alam bare peri hagathen. Bless you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, king of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Now, that's not a big deal. But if you think about how we pray before a meal, most of us, Lord, thank you for the food. We ask that you bless it to our bodies or some variation thereof. But Jesus, when he prayed for this meal, he blessed the Lord for the food. Not just thank him for it, but bless you Lord our God, King of the universe, you are the one who brings forth bread from the, from the earth or wine, fruit of the vine. That's pretty cool to know what Jesus prayed. Now, we know other things that he prayed. We, we see him praying. We, it, it, the, he taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. But at communion, at, at the Passover, this is what Jews still pray. This is what Jesus prayed, and this is what they prayed for a couple of thousand years, or I don't know exactly how long the Passover was before that off the top of my head, but for, for generations upon generations. So we know that's what he prayed. 
here's what's going on, though. There's a few little weird, strange, weird, weird. If you look up the definition of weird, it's unusual with a supernatural. There's a, one of the definitions, unusual with a supernatural flavor, okay? So it is weird, but it sounds a little weird to say about our Lord and Savior. But there's a few things going on in this. Remember, we're, we're going from Thanksgiving toward communion. There's something strange that happens here. Number one, he took bread, he broke it, and he tells them, this is my body for you. Now, they might not be getting it right here, but over time, after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit comes and, he, and the Holy Spirit teaches them everything they need to know and recalls everything that the Lord taught them, they look back through Jesus' ministry and they see all the times they misunderstood about bread. Master, there's too many people here. We need to send them off for food. Well, feed them. We only have a, like a day's wage. This could like cost 10 months. And he goes, sit them down in groups. And he took the little they had and he broke it. And they passed it off. And there were 12 baskets left over, reminiscent of the 12 tribes of Israel. It happens again when a little boy brings a sack lunch and they take a couple of pieces of bread and a couple of fish, they break it. So what, what are they learning from that? Well, they were in the boat one time and they're like, hey, we didn't bring any, we didn't bring any bread. He goes, why do you keep talking about bread to eat? And they're, they're confused. They don't understand. Here's what Je part of what Jesus is saying in this is that it, in the little bits of life, in the mundane things of life, I am your sustenance. I am the bread of life. I am the one who meets you in all circumstances, even the mundane things. With, and he takes the ordinary things of juice and bread. You see bread everywhere then. You see bread everywhere now. You could have bread today, and if you are doing a no-carb thing, you still have access to bread every day. It is the simple, most ordinary thing that people eat. And Jesus takes the most ordinary thing and does something extraordinary with it. He tells his disciples, he tells you and I, that no, come what may, no matter how bad or how ugly it gets, I am the bread of life, and you need to ingest me. You need to make me part of who you are. You need to let me nourish you, strengthen you, sustain you. And then the blood thing, some, some, uh, some Hebrew scholars will say that that's how we know that this isn't real, that he said, this is my, this is my blood of a new covenant, poured out for many. No Jewish rabbi would ever talk about blood that way. They didn't drink blood. They, didn't, they had to actually get rid of all the blood from, from any animal's body. They were kosher. And so it's anathema for a, um, for, for a Jewish man, especially, to have any ingestion of blood whatsoever. And so for Jesus, and notice that when he does it, he, he, he blesses God for the, the, the fruit of the vine, and he, pour, and he hands the cup around, and then says, so they all drink from a single cup, which is unusual. And then he says, this is my blood of a new covenant poured out for many. They had to be, what? Because blood is life. And I don't mean like us, if you lose your blood, you die. It, they saw the blood that runs through the veins as the life-giving force in a human being and in an animal. It's one of the reasons they had to drain all the blood from the animal once it was sacrificed before they ingested it. So when Jesus says, this is my blood of a new covenant poured out for many, I don't know if they choked it, choked it out, but it was, not a, it was a strange thing to hear. But what he's saying is, I am your lifeblood. 
It is me that makes you who you are. And there's one other thing going on here that you may not, you've you probably heard it from me, you might have heard it from Ray Vanderlaan, but the way a young man would propose to a young woman, even though the marriages were set up from years before, um, the way a young man would propose to a young woman, in, it, it was in the, 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 the groups that had a little bit more money, had a little bit more social, social status. But when, when, that, when they were going to become betrothed, the young man would invite the young lady to sit and he would pour wine and say, this is the blood of a new covenant poured out for you. Take, drink. And if she did, that's him saying, will you marry me? And if she did, she's saying, yes, I will marry you. Will you share with me all that is to come for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, through laughter and tears? Will you be faithful to me as long as your life shall last? It's a covenant that God is making between Jesus and his disciples. And it had to sound weird to his disciples, especially any one of them who had been married or any of them who, whose sisters had been married and they were familiar with that custom. Like, you're asking me to marry you? Yeah. I'm asking you to take me as the object of your deepest affection. I'm asking you to take me and to worship me, to obey me, to love me, to share with me all that is yours, all that you ever will have. And I will be with you and in you with laughter and tears, good and bad, sickness and health. That's, that is gorgeous. But somehow we go, eh, because we're so used to it. And then it says, and this is just, a, it, it says this in two of the three gospel accounts of, of, of that kind of look all the same about communion. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, it is traditional at, at, uh, at Passover to, three, to sing at the end of the meal, to sing one of three, uh, hymn, or one of three psalms. They're the Hillel Psalms. And so it's, it's one of three. But because these words had been on Jesus' lips earlier that day, I can't say for sure, but there's something going on here when Jesus picks the hymn for them to sing together. Just listen to Psalm 118, starting in verse 19b. Open for me the gates of righteousness, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Open the gates of righteousness, I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. Who claimed to be the gate? Who claimed to be the door? Who is the one who is salvation? His disciples don't know all that then. But Jesus does, 
And if this is the psalm they sang after Passover, Jesus is walking out knowing that one of his best friends is about to betray him, and he knows what's coming. He knows he's going to take 39 lashes. He's going to be tried, and it's going to be a scam of a trial. He knows that he's going to be through with nails on, uh, through his wrists and through his feet, that he's going, to be, he's going to be pierced for our transgressions. He knows that the very people that he's there to save are going to murder him, and he knows that his disciples are going to scurry and scatter and be afraid. And he still thanks the God of the universe for what he's doing. He still praises his father. And he calls his disciples to do the same. When he says, this is my body, he means it. And when he says, this is the blood, my blood of a new covenant poured out for many, it hasn't happened yet but it's about to. So let us consider him who endured such hardship from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the initiator of our faith. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us be the people that God died to make us. And let us be a people like Jesus who can praise God, the Father, come what may. We don't know what's coming. He did. And he still blessed the God, the ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, who brings forth fruit from the vine. You know that, that one little other little tidbit that I, I, I missed a second ago, that one of the things about juice, about grapes, and about wine is they, because they squashed the grapes, they believed that the juice that became wine was the blood of the grape. And do you remember in John 15 what Jesus says? I am the vine. You are the branches. And I want you to bear much fruit so that you will be a life-giving agent to others. So just consider this, friends. We are to be thankful in all circumstances. Remember Cord Ten Boom and her sister in the concentration camp? Thank God for the fleas because it kept the soldiers and the guards away and they could study and teach Scripture. I've said it before, I have no idea what's coming. But I can tell you one thing is certain. Come what may, we are to follow the example of Jesus. We're to follow the example of Habakkuk. We're to follow the example of Paul. And thank God no matter what. And the way I think we do that best is fixing our eyes on him, following his lead, and remembering that we are the joy that was set before him. And that was what kept him faithful through to and through the cross. He shamed the shame of the cross, considered it nothing because of you, his people, his joy. And he tells us, my joy be in you. Let us be a people who live in the joy of the Lord, who live in the rest of the Lord, and who give thanks 
because of all the things that he's done. Let's pray. Lord, help us fix our eyes on you. Help us remember that you lived it too. And help us have the courage to not look at our own circumstances all the time, but to look up and see what you're doing, to lean in to the person of Jesus and what he calls us to, and to live out our faith wherever the Holy Spirit leads. Come what may, let us be grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.